Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Beyond the virus that we fear most, we are also surrounded by bacteria, other viruses, fungi, and parasites. But wait, no need to reach for the Purell every time. In fact, these things represent what is called our microbiome. It accounts for as much as 90% of our cells, and its positive impact on our health is immeasurable. However, as a result of antibiotics, the food we eat, urbanization, and other wonders of modern medicine, we have done things in the name of do no harm, which just might be making us sicker. Today, this long-suffering field of research has suddenly been rediscovered. Back in 2016, when we had a White House that still believed in science, the Office of Science and Technology announced a $121 million initiative for research into the microbiome. My guest, Rodney Dietert, has been doing this research and talking about the microbiome for a long time. Rodney Dietert is a professor of immunotoxicology at Cornell University. He received his PhD in immunogenetics from the University of Texas, Austin, and has directed Cornell's graduate field of immunology. He's the author of numerous papers and articles, and it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Rodney Dietert here to talk about his book, The Human Superorganism, How the Microbiome is Revolutionizing the Pursuit of a Healthy Life. Rodney, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jeff. It's good to have you here. First of all, explain to our listeners that, that may have heard about but don't fully understand what the microbiome is. So the, the microbiome are the bacteria, some organisms called archaea, the viruses, the fungi, the parasites that live on and in our body. They're on our skin, they're in our gut, uh, in our airways, our nose, our lungs. Uh, they're in the urogenital tract, and they're basically at all the locations in which we're exposed to the external environment. And that's not just uh, uh, happenstance. They actually serve a role as a gatekeeper or filter between us and our food, our drugs, and our environmental chemicals. They, they see all of that first. So it's not surprising that how they deal with that influences our physiological systems and our health. And if you talk about the fact that we kind of carry this around with us as a, as a bubble almost that we just take with us wherever we go. Uh, that's true. There are a lot of researchers that have shown that um, if you go into a hotel room, you will have microbial leavings from that bubble of the prior guest that occupied that. And if you want to watch this in action, just uh, I have a whole section in the book on dogs, mm -hmm. and you can watch dog behavior. And, uh, and in fact, you know, as you know, dogs greet each other. They don't usually do it face to face. They do it nose to rear. And uh, that's for a reason. They're, they're actually uh, identifying, in a sense, through the, uh, through the gut microbiome. One of the things that, that you talk about and one of the things that is kind of revolutionary about where this field of research is going is that while we may have understood what the microbiome is and how we carry it around, its impact on our body and the impact of some of the things that we have been doing in modern society are really things that we're just beginning to learn about and understand now. Exactly. I mean, as, as early as probably the 1960s, there were bacteriologists that could tell you that the microbiome, it may have been named differently, but that it existed. But we never really realized the, the importance of it. I mean, beyond what is uh, estimated from 57% up to 90% of the cells 
in us, so either a small majority or a larger majority are microbial, but the gene contribution by the microbiome is huge. It's estimated at 99% or more. So those genes from the microbes are actually doing things. Again, they're taking our food or our environmental chemicals and our drugs, and they're changing them. And they're, de- they're dealing with it first, and then we see what's, what's left after, as a result. And we now know that the efforts in the, in the 20th century uh, through miracle drugs, the antibiotics, they really saved us from uh, serious infectious diseases, typhoid, cholera, and sanitation was a role in that, water sanitation. But we kind of overdid it, and we really didn't realize the long-term consequences. So that success story has become the nightmare of the 21st century, where we have things that used to be called chronic diseases they are now non-communicable diseases. So that's asthma, Alzheimer's, autism spectrum disorder, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, all of those things that are really now killing up to three quarters of the world's population. And that's what the real challenge is. Uh, And they don't just kill us, they disable us, they require us to take more and more drugs, and sometimes for a lifetime. And um, so that's my interest in really blunting that epidemic. Well, it turns out that we were never intended to be a purified mammalian species. Uh, Our ancestors carried these microbes along. They fed them with fermented foods, and they had a lifestyle that was more out in the environment, sometimes with farm animals, and that all supported it. And so we've really uh, unintentionally done some things without knowing that have damaged the microbiome. And as a result, uh, more often than not now, babies grow up being incomplete. They are actually lacking uh, the part of the micro- microbial part of them that the immune system needs to see, the brain and the neurological system needs to see, and needs to grow up with to function well. There's an interesting counterintuitive aspect to this because we think about these diseases, asthma, cancer, some of the things that you listed before, and, and we have this sense that these are things that are caused by our environment, that there's an environmental impact that, that is causing these epidemics and these, as you say, non-communicable diseases. But in fact, what we tend to be doing in response is purifying our environment and, and really stripping more and more out of the microbiome. Exactly right. Again, unintended consequences. We, you know, we're operating in a, with a different understanding of human biology. And uh, built environments today, again, more of us are living in urban areas with heavier doses of air pollution. And all of these things are actually contributing to problems with the microbiome. They're not, they're not helping. And so we've known for a long time that children growing up on a on a farm, a lot of the studies were done in different European countries, on a farm with farm animals, in early life, where we, that, that reduces the risk of asthma com, compared with children growing up just a couple miles down the road in an urban setting. And we now understand the explanation for that. It's, it's having the microbes in place, the microbiome more robust and diversified, and the potential allergens that one would encounter later in life there as the immune system maturing. So the immune system learns these are not a problem. We're not going to mount a life-threatening reaction to peanuts. We don't need to. It's not a danger. But in the absence of those kind of environments, in the absence of our being complete with our microbiome, you're more likely to have food allergies, obesity, inflammation, inflammatory diseases, and eventually cancer. And, and also the, the neurological conditions as well, both, both um, neurobehavioral alterations and things like depression. 
You talk about the impact on kids. Is there a point where the immune system kind of stops evolving, that, that it is just in place, or is it an ongoing dynamic process, even for those as they get older? Well, they're what we call critical windows. So they're it, actually when, when I was first teaching immunology at Cornell, it was sort of thought, oh, humans are good to go at birth. Immune development is complete. And it turns out it's only complete if you don't care whether things function well. <laughs> and uh, we've now learned that there are a lot of other populations of immune cells we never knew about, and that those, actually 60 to 70% of your immune cells are in the gut. So that shows you kind of how important that region is and the gut barrier is as well. And it turns out that from birth to two years of age uh, is really the critical benchmark for immune development. So that's in particular where you need the microbes in place co-maturing across the gut barrier, across the lung barrier, uh, the skin barrier, uh, with your mammalian cells, in, in particular the immune cells. And beyond that, the maturation is, is um, it still happens, but that's a really cr critical period. So that is not to say that you can't alter the microbiome later in life and have benefit. And I have my own personal story in there in my 60s, uh, almost by accident, figuring out how to do something that was very useful for my own health. It's part of the theme of a strategy that can be used for, for benefiting even older adults in terms of improved health through the microbiome. So any age it works, but the younger the better. And in your case, it was, was antibiotics that were a big part of it. But, but as you also talk about, many, many other prescription drugs that we take for various illnesses along the way have unintended consequences as well, more even than the side effects that we hear advertised. That's right. I mean, I've got toxicology in my title and directed my job title and directed the, the Cornell's toxicology toxicology institute for a number of years and safety of food safety of drugs safety of environmental chemicals has largely been determined based on safety for the human mammal that's the important thing to recognize so that most of the drugs out there the food additives and the chemicals have never been vetted for the microbial part of us we just didn't know to do it you know it was not intended it was just not done so now we're finding out all the problems that exist and this includes things like food emulsifiers but in the drug area, it's turning out that some of the initial reports coming out at conferences are that a majority of our existing drugs change the microbiome. And in changing it can do things that are adverse or unhelpful for our health. And there are examples like that. So digoxin, it turns out, can in some uh, patients be toxic. And it's all dependent, upon, and in others it'll work, and in others it doesn't work. Depends on one particular species of bacterium in your gut, how many of those you have. Um, NSAIDs, so ibuprofen, uh, naproxen, they can damage the microbiome, particularly with prolonged use. So then you take a proton pump inhibitor, an antacid, because you don't want to get stomach ulcers from NSAIDs, and that damages a different part of your gut microbiome. And that's sort of the continuing saga, is the majority of these alter the microbiome and, because they were never screened for safety. So one of the benefits of really physicians starting to work with the microbiome and knowing a patient's profile is that they're going to actually be able to make drugs safer, more effective. They're going to know who should get which drug, and they're going to know whether they need to change the microbiome of a patient before or after they administer it. What have we learned about the ability to alter, to change on purpose aspects of the microbiome? 
Well, the good news is, uh, again, if it's the majority of our genes that are contributing that, it is malleable and uh, it may be easier than our chromosomal genes in, in general. So while there's a lot more to learn about what we call rebiosis, and that's changing the microbiome, uh, we already know enough to, to make some really good strides. And so this can be done. It can be done through consuming probiotics uh, and along with that, the food for the good bacteria, that would be the prebiotics, or what's called prebiotics, and that's their energy source. And it can be done more radically uh, through things like fecal microbiota transplantation. So that's actually to have a donor tran uh, transplant of the gut microbiome. And that's now being done through even using oral uh, capsules. Uh, it can be done. And uh, so those are the kind of strategies that are being used. And particularly when you pair that with a healthy diet, and you've got microbes in place that are going to work with a healthy diet, uh, then you've kind of got the best of both worlds and your body's in sync rather than working against itself. One of the other things that there, there's been research on and that you talk about is this connection between the, the microbiome in our, in our gut and our brains. Absolutely. There's this exciting new area actually called psychobiotics, and there are investigators, researchers at University College Cork and others that have made terrific strides in understanding that our microbes, uh, particularly those in the gut, make uh, a, a huge amount of neurotransmitters. So they make dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, acetylcholine, uh, and they also control gut cell production of that. They can, they can help to regulate what our mammalian gut cells do, and the majority of those neurotransmitters are actually made in the gut instead of in the brain. A lot of people don't know that. So as a result, they have a both directly and indirectly, they have a tremendous effect on our neurodevelopment, on our behavior, and on things like our food cravings and our mood. So, you know, one of the real exciting things is rather than taking heavy-duty meds for depression or major depressive disorder, it's very likely that that's going to be able to be treatable through the microbiome with bacteria and their metabolites. And that's probably going to be a, a story that expands to many, many other conditions. How and I should say that depre depression is one of the most heavily prescribed conditions we see, and it's connected to so many non-communicable diseases. How is medicine in general, the medical profession, Western medicine, responding to this research and what it's showing? Because in many ways, it does run counter to, to more traditional approaches. Well, it, it is, uh, it's coming in a wave, I would say. And part of it is just that human biology is different than what I was taught uh, and what I used to teach when I first came to Cornell. It's a completely different understanding. We're a walking coral reef, essentially. And that's the best way to treat us in a healthy form. So physicians don't want to destroy parts of you that are important and that they didn't intend to destroy. And that's what happens with antibiotics. They, they, antibiotics are needed. They're the miracle drug of the last century. But if they're killing part of your microbiome that you're going to need, then physicians are going to want to put that back. And I think that's what we're seeing is more and more of them, as they're learning about the microbiome, they're going to be education uh, programs and courses that are coming forward. I'm aware of some of those being developed, and I think that that's really encouraging. So I think it's going to be a growing trend, and it's going to be supported as drug companies begin to make new generations of drugs that are designed to work with and through the microbiome. And they're simply going to do that because that's the filter. That's our gatekeeper. Again, drugs are going to be so much more effective with fewer side effects once we start to approach it that way. 
What is the nexus between genetic manipulation that, that really is at the cutting edge right now in terms of how it can cure disease, potential diseases and research into the microbiome and the way they might work together? Well, essentially, they're, they're the same thing. The difference is that if you're talking about the human mammalian genome, our chromosomes, that is estimated to have, through the Human Genome Project, about 22 to 25,000 genes. Compare that with the estimates of our microbial genes across all humans, and it's just under 10 million. And we can change it. We can change it with probiotics, fecal microbiota transplant, and the like. So it's genetic manipulation, but it's genetic manipulation of the majority of our genes, that being in the microbiome. That's why it's such an attractive approach. I mean, that's why it really is, it's just common sense. You go after the majority and the part that's easier to change. And as we talk about things like GMOs and, and the impact of things like that, do we understand fully the impact that those things are having on the microbiome? So nothing that has been screened using the human mammal as the endpoint for toxicology should be deemed to have been appropriately tested now. In a sense, as toxicologists, we did a great job based on our understanding of the biological model, but it's different than we understood. So we get to do, redo it. We get to do it over. And when you're talking about glyphosate and things like that, there's evidence that it damages soil microbes, and so I think it leaves open a, a big question mark about its potential effect on the human microbiome. And I think that's true of, of virtually all uh, environmental chemicals in that, you know, uh, as well. Uh, for example, one, of the, one that we know is toxic, arsenic. It turns out your individual vulnerability to arsenic is influenced dramatically by a particular category of microbes in your gut. So if you're consuming drinking water contaminated with arsenic uh, and your neighbor's consuming that same amount of drinking water contaminated with arsenic, you may differ in your actual uh, health risk from that exposure based on differences in your microbiome. And we know which bacteria and we know what they're doing uh, that produce extremely toxic products involving arsenic or don't produce those products. Mm -hmm. So there's actually going to be risk determinations of even environmental exposures that uh, are, you know, where you're either protected or you're put at greater risk based on your microbiome differences. How do we measure, how do we examine microbiome, number one? And, and the second part, are we in a situation where no two are alike? Well, the good, there's, there's, there's some good news there. So um, it's now thought in general that there's no single perfect microbiome in terms of the healthy microbiome, there are probably several. And part of that is because our ancestors lived in different parts of the world eating different food for millennia. And as a result of that, those differences in food sources and, and types of fermented foods and where they were living, um, they developed different uh, flavors of microbiome, I guess you'd say. And so each one of those has really a healthy sector of microbiomes and disease-related sectors. And it turns out, so you're probably going to have six or seven different prototypes of what a healthy microbiome really looks like. And we may find it's easier for us to move toward our ancestral prototype of a good microbiome than to try and move half a world away in terms of shifts that we, we would make. I think that's part of the general idea at the moment. 
So that's really the target is we know what a disease microbiome looks like and we know what healthy ones look like and we can make changes to move in the, in the healthy direction. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about one of the things that we're seeing with parenting today and trying to protect kids from so much of these outside influences and, and the, the effect that that's having. Well, we know that we're, we're leading uh, an over-sanitized life, and we're, li- li- uh, we're living in built environments and urban environments that are not uh, particularly conducive to supporting the microbiome in general. So thinking we were doing the right thing, and that's to purify our bodies, get rid of the microbes, and to control the environment that we're living in better, we've actually removed ourselves from nature and removed ourselves from a lot of the stuff that, that would support the microbiome. So there are all of these studies that... It used to be called the hygiene hypothesis, but they go back into uh, a couple of decades ago, where children that grew up on uh, animal farms in, in European countries um, really didn't have the incidence of allergies that children even a couple miles down the road in an urban area have. And we now understand that that's because they have a more diversified, robust microbiome in the, in the environment, the rural environment they're growing up with, and they have those allergens or potential allergens from animals that are there while their immune system's maturing and are then recognized as not being a danger. And uh, in contrast, the, the children in the cities are going to have more allergies, and we have things like peanut allergies showing up. Those didn't used to exist a couple of generations ago. So we've really changed our bodies in a way that's unhelpful thinking we were doing the right thing, but in reality, constructing environments that were really removing us from the the real essence of uh, what we need to thrive. And talk about the way in which we see dramatic changes in the microbiome between looking at people in these kind of urban built environments in the West and what you see, for example, in the developing world. Well, we've we've lost an estimated third to 40 percent of our microbiome compared with some of the indigenous people in the Amazonian region, for example. But we know that within two generations, so you have those, those people living out in, in, uh, in, in jungles, and if they move to a suburb of San Paulo, Brazil, for example, and within a generation they're already, you know, they're, they're not seeing obesity, they're not seeing diabetes or cancer, and then they start to see it. And within the second generation, if they're down in the urban area, they look like us. They look like us in the microbiome. They look like us in the diseases and the prevalences of those diseases. So it can degrade really fast uh, by simply wrong diet, air pollution, uh, removing yourself from, from those things that, you know, the lifestyle choices that in the end it turns out really support uh, the whole human. What is the cutting edge of the research now? What is it that, that you still don't really understand about the microbiome and that, that we hope that continued research that, that people like you are doing, what is it we still hope to learn? Well, I think the exciting thing is going to be we know that with more detailed analysis and not just bacterial species, but you really want to know the genes they're carrying. So that's why you'll see probiotics labeled with strain designations, because it's the genes that matter, uh, maybe more so than the species of uh, probiotic bacteria. So it's going to be really important to get precise uh, analysis of individual patients. And that's what precision medicine is going to be all about, or personalized medicine. And for doctors to be able to get that rapidly, so I actually talk in the book about uh, breathalyzer tests or other kinds of tests drawing upon the fact that these microbes produce volatile chemicals. They send them out into the air, they're in our breath. Uh, and the, by knowing that, it's going to be able to really help 
direct health professionals uh, to do a better job in terms of supporting the whole human in, in terms of uh, medical strategies in both preventative medicine and in therapeutics. And I think individuals are going to be able to, you can get microbiome analysis now, and while it will improve in detail and definition in the future, you can already get enough to, to understand and know whether you're headed in the right direction or not. And we have an example in my own family where one individual had a prescription drug that was supposed to be pretty limited in its action, and it really, really <laughs> decimated the microbiome. It took about nine months to build it back with diet and probiotics. So we were able actually to see, uh, by doing periodic sampling of an, an analysis of the microbiome, precisely what a, a drug did and precisely what it took to put it back before the treatment. Dr. Rodney Dietert, his book is The Human Superorganism, How the Microbiome is Revolutionizing the Pursuit of a Healthy Life. Rodney, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thank you, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Thank you.